this is for sure risky to the white culture <laughs> that's so well composed and strategic about what they're saying. But I think that you can't err on showing love and compassion to people. I honestly believe that. And maybe that's informed by years of trauma working in New York, North Philadelphia, sure. But when you tell people I see you, it means so much. And it means everything. It's just replying to an email that you think there's nothing else to be said and say, hey, I see you. Thanks for all you do. Right? If you're walking in a hurry, but you notice someone stocking the shelf at the store and saying, hey, I see you. Thank you. Right? Like to be able to see people gives them part of like a reason to say, oh, you see me, I exist. Right? That's the concept of Sawabona, Sokona. Like part of my identity is because I've been seen. And I don't think it can go unsaid. I think it does go unsaid. And that's why we have mass shootings. And that's why we have stabbings. And that's why we have all sorts of tragic things that emerge because people felt unseen. And it's like, what a gift to be able to say, hey, I see you. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and I am joined today by my fabulous co-host, Shelly Riggs-Jordan. Shelly, it's great to have you with me today. Well, thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. I'm excited about this conversation today. Yes, me too. Me too. It's a great conversation we're going to have. And, and to give our audience a little taste, we want to spend some time talking about kind of the nuances and the unique challenges and opportunities of immigrant communities, but specifically Hispanic and Latinx communities here in the U.S. and even more particularly in Indiana. So Shelley, as you think about the work that you do as our Southeast Director in Seymour, where do topics related to Hispanic and Latinx congregations come up in your work? You know, unfortunately for me, it doesn't come up that often. And I think it's because historically, I'm not sure we've done the best job working with congregations of color, immigrant communities. And so for me, one of the things that I am trying to learn is what does it mean to enter into that culture in a way that invites relationship, that lets folks know that, you know, the Center for Congregations is here to help. And so just meeting people and beginning to build relationships. So I guess for me, it's in the infancy stage, but I am excited about what the future might hold when it comes to working with congregations of color and being a part of immigrant communities. Because I know there is a large Hispanic population here in Seymour. So just being able to offer our services is exciting. Absolutely. And I think you're primed to help lead that growth in the Southeast portion of the state. So I'm excited about that as well. And it comes up more often for sure here in Indianapolis, the office that I work out of. And it comes up in a variety of different ways. So there are some of the initial challenges on my end as a consultant 
you know, sometimes there's a language barrier. I've got to figure out how to navigate so that I can help disseminate the information that I want our congregational leaders to receive. But other times it's just understanding different cultural nuances, pace of communication, preferred style of communication. And it takes doing a lot of listening and humility on my end to try to understand, okay, this is the process that a church might normally go through when working with us. How does this process need to shift so that I can meet the needs of this leader or this congregation? And that's a question that I think I have to hold pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get better at holding more and more. Yeah, those are great questions to be thinking about. Not walking in with my framework and my set of expectations, but doing more listening than I do talking, which is always difficult for me. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm learning. (laughs) I'm learning to listen more than I speak. (laughs) And, you know, I'm excited that we are taking this step as an organization to learn more. You know, mm-hmm. We had Dr. Madrazo come in last year sometime to give us an overview of the landscape for Hispanic and Latinx congregations throughout the state. Right? And that was really insightful information and helpful information. So I love that there's kind of an organizational culture of learning that is fueling this growth and this expansion that we know that we need. It's, it's been really cool to be part of. Yeah, it really has. It really has. Well, in any kind of cultural diversity just adds richness and layers, right? Where we didn't have before. And so I'm excited to see how it transforms not only us, but congregations and communities, this new work that we're doing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we could spend a lot more time talking about this, but as we mentioned at the start of this, we have a great interview that we want y'all to hear. And so we'll just jump into that. You're going to get to hear from Reverend Alexandra Zareth. And y'all, it was wonderful. We laughed. We talked. I might have done a spit take at some point. (laughs) Good times were had. Good times were had by all. (laughs) And you will learn. (laughs) Yes, you will learn. So, you know, without further ado, we're going to take you on over to our conversation with Reverend Alexandra. So great to be here this morning. Uh, Shelly and I are joined by Reverend Alexandra Zareth. Alexandra, it is great to have you in this virtual space today. Welcome to the podcast. Gracias. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, And before we jump into the conversation, I just want to leave some space for you to introduce yourself however you want to do that. So what would you like our audience to know about you this morning? Well, hello, I'm Alexandra Zareth. That's the first thing I'd like them to know. (laughs) The second (laughs) is that I am. Uh, Mexican, and sometimes I go in and out with some Spanglish, and so that's possible. I am a child of God. I am a therapist. I am a student of life. I'm a coach. I'm a pastor. I pastor pastors, (laughs) and I have a lot of fun working with leaders across the country, and I've been blessed because as in many immigrant communities, the community invests a lot in you. And so then when we get educated and we try to grab all these things that my father called the alphabet soup after our names, we try to give back. And so my every day that I get out of bed, it's because I want to help my people, my communities, and make them better, stronger, and more vibrant. So that's me in a nutshell. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, of course. And you currently do some work with PCUSA, is that correct? 
I do. I do. I work for the Presbyterian Church USA, and my job is to do leadership development, usually, particularly with leaders of color. We have a couple of pockets, although the denomination is about 90% white. We still have pockets with Middle Easterns, with Asians, African Americans, which are separate from the African communities, Latino, Hispanic, and so on. So yeah, that's my work, the bulk of it. Excellent. I can't tell you how long I've been looking forward to our conversation. So uh, Shelly and I are both excited about this. And we're going to spend some time talking a little bit about the trends and maybe the experiences or nuances of our Hispanic and Latinx brethren and sisters in congregational life and in the church community. And so, Alexander, can you just paint with broad brushstrokes some of the trends that you've noticed in your work over the years and decades? Well, I think the most important one to name is that the community is growing. (laughs) And, you know, as we are able to count them, and it was much more complicated to count them in the 2020 census. So on the one hand, we got better as scientists at counting and, you know, structuring questions better, you know, whereas before maybe somebody like myself would have been like, well, I'm Mexican, American and native. Now I can say Mexican, American, native, Colombian, black, African, right? Like it's actually got more ways of coding. And so in one way, in some ways we've gotten better. In other ways, just given the times that we're living in, it got harder to count the people. So the numbers we have have shown that there's a population increase with Latino Hispanic communities, but are the numbers real? (laughs) I mean, maybe. Do they show growth? For sure. (laughs) So is it worth knowing? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to hinge on whether it's 60 million more, 61 million more, but it's a lot. It's a lot. And multicultural, multiracial is definitely the number that went up highest in the census altogether. So, I mean, these numbers are just kind of blending. Um, The number decreasing is white only. And so here we are. I think that's an important trend to name. And I think how we do theology is shifting. Because technology is shifting that. We'll probably talk about it more, but we have access to more ways of learning and podcasts <laughs> and, you know, television, YouTubes and all sorts of things that educate us as leaders. And then we educate the congregations, right? Or we start conversations or we might not. And that's its own element. And so I don't know if that answers the question, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> It does. Those are two important trends to name. So that does definitely answer the question. And, you know, speaking to the numbers, someone like me that grew up here in the Midwest, it's easy to imagine, oh, most of this growth is happening in like Texas and California, maybe Chicago. But no, like here in Indiana, even in small town Indiana, we are seeing a lot of growth, especially among various immigrant communities, right? Both our Latinx and Hispanic communities, but also our Southeast Asian communities, our Central African communities. I feel like all across the country, this growth is happening. It's been really exciting to see. It is. If I can name a story, may I tell a story? Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Go for it. <laughs> so here's my story. I lived in Kentuckyana for a little bit. And when I first got there, having lived in the Northeast where it was very diverse, I go to Kentucky, feel invisible. And then I decide to go to the closest grocery store per my GPS. And I go and I'm walking around. And again, the ceiling inside of me, this is just a few years ago. I wasn't like 13 and lost. No, I was full grown professional. And so there I am feeling invisible, which is its own topic for another day. And I go to the grocery store and I start seeing that the international section had a lot of varieties of salsa and a lot of varieties of cheese and a lot of varieties of queso fresco and queso picante and queso whatever. And I was like, what? My people, 
they're here, they're somewhere. <laughs> so I started learning that Indiana does in fact have a lot of Latinos. And so I started driving from Kentucky to Indiana to go to markets and like find places and all to say the Latino population in Indiana for sure is growing. There's a lot of them. If you're wondering, go to your grocery store and check out the international aisle. You'll see who's actually living in your community because they certainly do their research better than sometimes we do in the church. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Oh, that's kind of a gut punch, but true. I like that. I'm a former youth pastor. I remember, oh gosh, it must have been 2012-ish and started changing the way we did youth mission trips. Really wanted to get students in inner cities because I remember reading census predictions that the population of cities was going to grow. I think it was by 2020, the expectation that whites would become the minority number-wise and recognizing that we are in a very white area and wanting to get our students a place where they could see different faces and different cultures. So to hear you talk about the reality of that now and what it looks like in our communities is really exciting for me that we've made that transition. And then how do we as a congregation, how do we as a church start really embracing that and figuring out what it means in our communities? Yeah. And, you know, we're changing as humans. Globalization is happening, right? I heard this one story where someone was gaming in the United States and the other person on the other end of the gaming was somewhere else in another country, maybe the UK. Forgive me, but you guys know the story, but you know, the person had a seizure on the other end of the game and they called 911 here and they connected to emergency services in Europe and they were able to save somebody's life. Like the world is shrinking because mm -hmm. of technology. And so if we want to be better, you know, Samaritans, right? Like good mm -hmm. neighbors, we have to figure out and recognize that our neighborhood is shifting and that the world is shrinking thanks to technology. And so what are we doing as a church? What are we called to do with the people who follow Christ? It's a, an important conversation. Yes. Redefining who our neighbor is. Yeah. And how is that conversation playing out within the Presbyterian Church USA denomination as demographics are shifting even in that kind of stalwart mainline denomination? You know, I, I want to shout out to how we learn from one another, right? And so we learned that we needed to have better services, and we call them global language resources. So that's the title officially for what used to be known as translation services. So there's a team helping us be better at like language hospitality, which is one aspect of like supporting one another and learning and growing as communities. So I mean, making things accessible. I think that's important, right? We've learned that it's not just about translating the document from English to Spanish. It's about getting Spanish speakers to look at your documents that you've translated or maybe writing them from scratch altogether, right? So there used to be a leadership assessment that we did with new worshiping communities and it was translated to Spanish. And then some of the people that were going through it were like, this is completely out of context. And so what that began was a couple of years of a process of thinking, well, what would you put in it? And Google's going to write it. And how do we culturally make it appropriate, contextualize it and whatnot? And so that's just one example of how we become better behaviors and how we do intercultural relationships better. And it's taken time. It's taken resources. It's taken commitment. It's taken patience. <laughs> it's taken people who are cultural brokers that explain like we're on our way. 
this pace is slow, but we're on our way. <laughs> I'm making ends, right? And to be able to tell, you know, a structure with all of its structural issues that no, 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 this is what it looks like. It might not look like what you want it to look like yet, but I think we're making end roads, right? And so I think that's one that I would want to highlight. There's one more thing, which is, you know, what becomes important in some of our communities and we say is like, we have to talk about it right now means something very different in other cultures, right? So Mm -hmm. climate change. We all maybe care about climate change, maybe not, I don't know, but supposedly it's a thing, right? Well, if it's a thing for you who does not live by the coast and didn't immigrate, it's going to sound different in a conversation, right? So I need to do my homework Mm -hmm. about who I'm approaching with this concern that I have about climate change, because it might actually be traumatic for this person that's listening to me talk about how important climate change is, but they don't know that I lost my home multiple times because I grew up in the coast. So when you talked about hurricanes, it triggers something in me that's very different. So we can't even approach the same important conversation in the same way, right? So how do we establish these relationships and how do we start conversations? Teen pregnancy is another one. We had funders come to like the Latino organizations and say, we've got to do something. 54% of Latinas get pregnant before 18. This is tragic. And, you know, the communities were like, is it tragic? Let's talk about what tragedy is first, right? Like, like we mm-hmm. love family. And so we have a set of values that we need to talk about that might be different. So discerning those values and discerning like where we're starting from. Hopefully that makes sense. But that's some of the things that we just can't even approach the topics in the same way. And so it does take patience and time slowing things down. <laughs> and not making assumptions. I hear you saying not making assumptions about other folks that I need to listen more than I speak and ask questions and be willing to acknowledge that somebody else's lived experience may be very different from my lived experience. And how do we then have a conversation? That's great. That's a great advice. Thank you for that. Yeah, I can think of lots of things that the research nowadays can show us, right? We're in 2022. We've studied what COVID has done. We all have heard of the health disparities, education disparities, how our kids are reading it all across the United States, right? They're reading it 10 years ago or their math levels were lower, like all of these things that we know, right? But again, if you're going to engage a conversation of someone who comes from a different culture, like we need to start to even figure out what does this even mean to you? Did you know that this is a thing, right? If I'm an expert at reading, do you have an after-school program that I can come and read to your kids? Because if you know that that's your skill, number one, and two, there's a need, then would this be of service to your church? You know, a lot of churches are reinventing wheels and it's like, you don't have to reinvent anything. You just need to show up for your neighbor. <laughs> Let me stop preaching. Tell you preaching. No, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> uh, I love it. That's right. Our audience will be listening, so y'all aren't seeing the video, but there was just a little bit of spice that, that I did put on that last comment. And I, I appreciate it. Yes. That's great. You're bringing up this concept of cultural brokerage, and I'm so excited that you are because we touched on it when we had our phone conversation a couple weeks ago, and I was going to ask you to unpack it a bit more. You've started to do that, but can you take us into the next level of what do we mean when we say being a cultural broker and what are the different responsibilities? I'm imagining, and, and I could be wrong about this, that the responsibilities might shift a little bit depending upon the context you're coming from. So my responsibility as someone who's a biracial Black male born and raised in the Midwest 
might be a little different than someone else that is a first or second generation immigrant or refugee coming here that's a transplant to the Midwest. So can you just talk about what cultural brokerage means and how we can understand it? Yes. So let me explain one thing that I mean by cultural broker, which case in point for how even our context matters, right? So what I understand by the word broker is that you see this gap and your job is to sort of figure out what it is, the gap, and how might we need it, right? So one example would be that, and I'm borrowing this from my years as a trauma chaplain, when a doctor is asking me to tell the family that they need to do something, right? And the family is not interested in doing that because it goes against their cultural practice, not because the doctor is wrong and not because the doctor's desire is wrong, but because where the family is, is just not where the doctor is, right? We have different set of Mm -hmm. values, information, different goals altogether. And the job of the broker in that case, the cultural broker, is to figure out like, where is everyone? What's the gap? Can we meet it? And if so, how? Right? Am I the person? Am I not the person? And so I think what's really important is to know first your own skills. Like, what are you bringing to the table? What are you bringing to these conversations? What are your values? What are your goals? What is the end goal here? Right? And starting from there. So if you want to be a good cultural broker, you have to know yourself. You have to know your space. You have to know your strengths. You have to know what it is you're bringing to the table and why. Because if it comes from a good place, and I would say we want to approach one another from a good place, you know, Jesus loved me, so here's why I'm here. And that's a good place to start from. But if it mm-hmm. doesn't show up in that way, then I want to be able to go back and see like, no, 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 but let's start off with the fact that I'm here because Jesus loves me. And like, I'm ex- trying to extend the grace that I feel I received, right? That's where I'm coming from. So if I'm not showing that to you right now, I apologize because I want, that's my goal. And so when you end up feeling the gap, it's still there. <laughs> you're able to say, okay, well, let me take a step back and find out where I'm coming from or what my goals are. And let's clarify that. And so for cultural brokering, with churches, within denominations, with your local community as you start a community development center, it comes from a place or it needs to start from that personal space and then figuring out what's important to you and is God calling us to work together towards what, right? Towards strengthening the community, towards empowering the children, to increasing safety. Otherwise, churches will come and donate things they don't need in their church and be like, well, here's what you guys probably need. And it's like, (laughs) no, no, I don't need another bookshelf that then I have to recreate and figure out how to use it because that's not what I have a lot of books and English that are from 1976 (laughs) because you don't want your Britannica anymore. No, that never happened. Never happened. (laughs) I'm not recalling urban ministry at all. I'm just thinking. I think you're talking about rural ministry too. I think you're just talking about ministry. Probably right. So I hear you saying, especially in all of this, that relationships are so important and that really getting to know people so that you can honestly say, what do you need and how can we help? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important. And I think in a culture which might need its own explanation of white supremacy culture, we're in a hurry. We have urgency. Like we have to get through this. We don't have time. And it's like, okay, well, then you don't want to do this. And that's fine. <laughs> right. But if you want to do this, then you're going to have to slow down. 
Because that's just not how we do things. I was in a meeting last week where they're like, well, we just want to know how everybody's feeling. And it's like, well, this is not how we do things here. (laughs) And it was a Presbyterian meeting, right? All these Presbyterians. But most of us were people of color and immigrants. And so we were just like, yeah, brother, like I hear you. (laughs) You have to give a report to the executive director, but these kinds of conversations require coffee. We're on Zoom. We're not feeling it. Like, it's important, brother, but I'm not sure that I have anything to add. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to say that out loud because this silence was so loud, right? Here's this person who has that urgency, has to give a report. He's presenting his report to us. And he's like, is this correct? So that I can take it to the next level. And we're like, silence. So we're like, okay, so maybe the silence is related to the fact that we don't know you very well. Yeah. And it's, that's not how we do things, but we appreciate what you did. Have a great day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Almost like this to-do list. It's more than just checking off items. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I've told pastors, I know this is obnoxious. I don't mean to, I don't want to do this to you. Here's why I'm doing it. Here's another example. We were funding youth ministry. We were funding it through the Department of Justice, right? Years ago, the government was like, oh, if we help churches, they help with young people. We're going to have less people in jail. Let's fund churches, right? That's how that thought process went. So pastors were like upset that I was asking these questions. And so I'd have to fly there in person, the middle of LA and from Philadelphia and say, brother, I know you're doing the work. I know. I see it. And you deserve more support, financial support. I don't mean to disrespect you. I just know that the government needs a report from your treasure, right? Like it's not disrespect. It's not inappropriate. I could see how this is personal. I took a plane and I charged DOJ for it. I took a (laughs) plane (laughs) to come and tell you in person that I knew you were doing more ministry than even what you told me you were doing, right? Because they were counting 50 children and I walked in and I said, there's easily 250 children here. You're actually a mega church. I had no idea. And he was like, well, no, pero la gloria y honra del Señor, like to God be the glory, man. I don't want to take the credit. And I was Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 we're not taking God's credit. We're just giving credit where credit is due, right? The worker is, I don't know it in English, el obrero es digno de su salario. Like you get a salary if you've been the worker. There's a Bible verse in there, right? (laughs) I don't know it in English. But it took a plane. It took a relationship. It took me seeing things. And it took me saying, you're doing a lot of work. And reframing the theology, right? Like, no, to God be the glory. I'm not taking it. It's like, God wants to bless you through that. And you deserve it. You've worked hard. Let's figure out how to tell your story differently. You know? Hmm. That's a great example of cultural brokerage that you've been talking about. And I'm wondering, you know, Alexandra, how much of what you're bringing is you? How much of it are you bringing this additional skills you've cultivated as a chaplain or a minister over the years? Because you're not just doing relationship. You are bringing a deep sense of humility and awareness, both self-awareness, awareness of the other, awareness of the larger systems that play into each of these interactions that you've named. And you're inviting everyone who might be a cultural broker to bring all that in there. And it's beautiful. And as we all know, it is incredibly rare. You do not encounter that level of humility and awareness in the wild regularly. <laughs> you know, but it's beautiful and we need it. I love that. It's true. Yeah. And yet, isn't it biblical? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good talk. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> no, you're right. Praise God. To God be the glory. <laughs> 
And I think part of it is what scripture tells us, right? Scripture tells us that we are one body, different members, right? With different gifts for different purpose. And so part of the issue is our own personal discernment. Like, can I do other jobs? For sure. Am I in the job I'm supposed to be? That's the question, right? Mm. Yeah. Have I like sharpened some skills through formal education? Yeah. And through experiences as I've moved around the country. Yeah. And scripture tells me that there's gifts that I have for such a time as this. And those gifts you have that for such a time as this. And so if I try to fit myself in what the other things other than my own space, then it won't come out the same way. It's just not going to yield its fruit in the same way. So says the Bible, I think. <laughs> just paraphrasing here. You know. <laughs> but I think for me, one of the things is people have such a narrow definition of all of that. We are one body, but we often don't see ourselves as one world body that, you know, it's just, oh, we're one body right here in this building. So I love that you are pushing open that definition and making it broader because you're right. That is what it says. That it's so much more than a lot of people think. And I think that's a beautiful gift. It's an invitation, right? It's an invitation to think bigger. Mm-hmm. It's an invitation also that requires we release certain things we think we know, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have the right theology and it's like, but if you don't love your neighbor, <laughs> like what's more important, right? Like holding on to this incredibly deep truth that you are telling me you know. Or like showing love and compassion. Like it's a choice and you can make whatever choice, but it is a choice. And you can't hold on to all of those things with Mm -hmm. the equal strength because you just can't. You have to Mm -hmm. release the possibility that you may not have it all. And that Mm -hmm. someone else, you know, that the Holy Spirit might lead someone else to fill that gap that you cannot fill. It's possible. Not only is it possible, it's probable. <laughs> I feel like it's biblical, but what, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you are on a roll, lady. You are on a roll, and I'm loving it. <laughs> They're going to boycott me here. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I assure you, you haven't said anything more wild than what I say we think, so you're fine. <laughs> I've heard you. <laughs> I'm wondering... You know, I'm thinking of our audience and the listeners, and for some of them, this idea of being a cultural broker may be new. For some, it'll be familiar, and people always want to know, okay, but what do I do? Like, Alexandra can do this. She sounds like an amazing person. I'm not Alexandra, right? So for those leaders, be they lay leaders or clergy leaders that are listening, that want to know, okay, what piece of this can I bring to my congregation tomorrow so we can start becoming cultural brokers, right, more and more each day? What pieces would you invite them to kind of hold on to and as seeds to plant in their communities? Great question. I think one thing that is going to transfer, again, the same image, right, of the body of Christ, like we are different members. I think that we can borrow from community development theories right out there, like where we might want to start, which is with our internal assessment, right? What are our resources? If you want to use the strength, the weaknesses, the, what is it, the SWOT? The SWOT analysis, yeah. The opportunities, the threats, right? Like, that's just a simple one, right? Like, but who am I in my church, right? Like, do you have a bunch of people that are a little bit older, professional, maybe retired, then they might have more time? Well, I mean, first, personally, like, what are my own personal gifts, right? That's biblical. And also, like, as a church, like, who has God led to these pews, right? 
and then expanding it to the next level. And what's the community that I'm serving in? And what do they need? And where is the gap? Like, I think that's how a lot of the community development begins, right? With these like assessments of resources and opportunities. And I think there's so much to learn. I was walking down the street and they asked me to translate or interpret for a meeting that was just going to happen with an after school program that was bringing in a parent to talk to them about something. And I ended up needing to explain to this parent that they were not in trouble and that they were not going to get the cops called on them because the school system had a report that the kid had reported a desire to take their own life, right? It would be better Mm -hmm. if the kid had said something and by mandated reporting, it just escalated into the school system in a particular way. And I I was like, no, I can't actually just translate what you're saying. Let me go ahead. Can I stop you and explain process? Because this woman's afraid of something that in her country would have happened to here. And so, you know, to be able to do that and to say, yo, I can totally interpret because I know speak those languages. And it became this like, oh, actually, this is much bigger than that. And so what was the need, right? And to be in the moment, yeah, it takes practice. And you have to be humble. You might show up and be like, I have 17 volunteers for your after school program. And people might say, that's not what we need. Like, we're going to collect garbage. You want to read the kids, but we're trying to just clean the basement to start a new after-school program. Mm. Well, I didn't bring that, and I just got my nails done. Okay, well, then you, like, you know, like, know what Mm. you want to do, can do. Let's examine what the need is and see if there's a space there. Like, yeah, is it easy? No. Is there a good book out there? I'm sure. But it doesn't beat your own discernment with God and your own analysis of, like, who has God brought to this church? Who are we today in this like post-COVID world where we know the disparities because they're out there now. There's facts. We felt it, right? We felt it when COVID started and the racial uprising started. We felt it. And yet, so now we have the data. I have a question because you said something that really struck me and you just kind of said it and then went on. But you said, I was feeling invisible. And I think that's significant Because at some point in life, we all feel invisible. But I think as a white woman, my experience of that is very different than what you're talking about. Can you say more about that? Yeah, no problem. I think it was an important thing to name because I feel that resonates with a lot of Latino Hispanics. We end up sometimes immigrating into this country. Sometimes people are born here and still it's true. You end up taking all of these jobs that aren't. We are cleaning the bathrooms, right? We are the ones that are like picking up the trash at the mall after it's closed. We are the ones coming into the offices over the weekends and cleaning. And these are jobs I've had, right? And so I've been invisible. And then when I go through school and end up in the Northeast where it's super diverse and wonderfully filled with culture, I realize I'm like in a piano syndrome of black and white dialogue. And I'm like, oh, oh, I don't even know. I don't even know because I'm a mestiza. And so I'm Native American, I'm Mexican, but that's not a conversation here. And so I don't even know where I fit in. So then, you know, you learn through higher education. You learn the systems and you figure out how to succeed and graduate and keep it moving. And you realize that you're invisible in many ways. And when I moved to Kentucky, I didn't see anybody that looked like me. Well, I didn't see them waiting tables. I mean, I didn't see them 
at my office, but I saw them in the back kitchens when I would go in through the back or park in a strange night. So I was like, oh yeah, we're like the ones behind the scenes. And when I went to the grocery store and I was like so incredibly happy because I was like, that means my people are here, (laughs) (laughs) but we're not in the front. We're in the international aisle somewhere in the back. Right. And so when essential workers were the only ones that stayed home, well, I found my people out, right? Like they kept the grocery stores stocked. So it, it's a feeling. It's a feeling that we have to fight through, depending. It's probably true for other immigrant communities because there is no effort if you're the majority. There is no effort if you know and speak the language well. It is no effort. You probably don't have to code switch, right? You just have to be and you have to exist. Some of us have to really think and pause and like think through the answer in one language and then translate it. And, and then it just becomes work. And then I'm going to make you mad because it takes time. And so then it's just like, it's fine. I don't have energy for that. And then you just slip into the invisible because it's just like, you know what, it's fine. Mm-hmm. So it's both like from the external and what you learn internally of like, oh, the energy is so hard to just to give away. So let's not give it away. Then you just, you accept it. But that's a hard thing to live in. And it's not biblical, right? Mm-mm. So you end up saying like, no, who does God say that I need to be right now? And we go back to that discernment. Why is God getting me out of bed today? Who do I need to show up for? How do I extend the grace that I feel God gave me, right? Like, And then it's like, well, I'm going to have to say something because it's from God's grace that I can speak. And so you end up speaking, (laughs) you end up cruising Indiana and finding these aisles where there's like Mexican food. (laughs) It's possible, (laughs) but it's not without effort. I appreciate that. So like, how do I, in my everyday life, how do I reach out and extend an invitation for people not to feel invisible in a way that's authentic? And do I just do that by building relationships? That's a great question. Can I add an addendum to that question? I'm thinking about a conversation I had two weeks ago with a Latina pastor here in Indy. And she was talking about invisibility as well. The way she was talking about this type of invisibility was I almost in my mind understood it as a type of chosen invisibility. What I mean by that is there are certain circumstances I think that are legitimately unsafe where there's an active actual threat like arrest, deportation, whatever. And so it actually is beneficial if you can be less noticed. So can you just speak to that as you're answering Shelly's question? Because I think it might apply as well. I think they're separate questions. Okay. And so I'll answer Ben's first and then get back to you, Shelly. To Ben's question, I think the chosenness is true for all of us. I think that that's a learned response from trauma, which is mm-hmm. we end up figuring out that whole comment that I made about like energy. Like I can't make it. I can't, you know. And so it's like if I just have 10 ounces I'm going to make a choice and not give them to you because I know my kid, I have a school meeting with my kid's teacher and I'm going to need it all over there. So I don't have time for this. Right. So you make these choices sometimes from trauma, like in the case of where an ice raids are happening and you're just not sure as someone who's been deported, even though I have the right papers, I just don't have them on me, but they don't care. So you're like, no, I'm just not even going to do it. I'm not even going to say anything. So some of it is learned and some of it, is strategy, which is a fair choice to make, right? It's a safe choice. And I think that that's an important one as well. And because maybe of tokenism, Mm. right? So if I pass and if my accent's okay, and you're not going to wonder where I'm from, 
And my name's the kind of nebulous, Zareth. It could be anything. And I always say like Nazareth, but without the N.A. And people are like, oh, yay, Christian, right? <laughs> Not to say anything else. <laughs> and if yes. I just put Alex, you won't know if male or female in an email. And that's another strategy. And so there is strategy behind like, doing some of these things because you learn that the systems have all these isms, right? Whether it's sexism or racism or whatever, xenophobia is out there as well, right? So I think some of that is strategy. Now to Shelly's question, how do you do this? This is for sure risky to the white culture (laughs) that's so well composed and strategic about what they say. But I think that you can't err on showing love and compassion to people. I honestly believe that. And maybe that's informed by years of trauma working in North Philadelphia. Sure. But when you tell people, I see you, Mm. it means so much. And it means everything. To reply to an email that you think there's nothing else to be said and say, hey, I see you. Thanks for all you do. Right? If you're walking in a hurry, but you notice someone stocking the shelf at the store and saying, hey, I see you. Thank you. Mm. Right. Like to be able to see people gives them part of like a reason to say, oh, you see me, I exist. Right. That's the concept of Sawabona Sokona. Like part of my identity is because I've been seen. And I don't think it can go unsaid. I think it does go unsaid. And that's why we have mass shootings. And that's why we have stabbings. And that's why we have all sorts of tragic things that emerge because people felt unseen. And it's like, what a gift to be able to say, hey, I see you. And if we do believe, hey, Jesus loves you, the Bible said, right? It's like, okay, well, what does that even mean? Well, it means I see you. It means that I was invisible, but God came to me. And for that reason, you know what? Jesus loves you too. But I mean it though. Like I see you and Jesus loves you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that Jesus loves you person in the streets, but I am the one that will say, I see you. Stock in the shelf. I see you. Keep it up. People are always like, oh my God, how embarrassing this lady said something. <laughs> but I don't think anyone's been like, stay in your business, Pastor. Nobody. Right. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, I like that because that's practical. I can do that because I do notice, but I don't always say anything. So just that extra, just say it. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, it's cultural. It's cultural that you were taught not to right? Mm-hmm. That you have to keep it together, that you don't want to be in each other people's business. Don't be eavesdropping. That's not polite, right? <laughs> There's teachings there mm-hmm. versus in my culture. It's like, hey, I see you, you know, from across the street. Where's your mom, right? It's like, I'm talking about mom. And it's like, oh my God, why is the neighbor yelling at me across the street? Like, so I mean, part of it is culture, but Part of it is, that is true. Like, are they fighting? No, they're just like really excited. Yeah, but in white culture, we're all like, oh, um, hello, how are you? Don't raise your voice. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah, we have no passion. We are the frozen chosen. You've probably heard that as a Presbyterian, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I never understood that until I went to a Presbyterian worship service. It's a thing. Same. (laughs) Definitely a thing. Yes. Oh, thank you for that answer. I really appreciate it. As we get ready to wrap up today, I'm wondering if there are things that you want to say, Alexandra, that we haven't thought to ask you about or something you came into this conversation really wanted to be able to name that we haven't given or offered a chance to name yet. You guys have been great. I think you're asking all the right questions. I would say keep asking yourselves how to show up for other people. I think there's just like no way to 
there actually there is ways to do it wrong, <laughs> but or maybe unhelpful, right? There's ways to be unhelpful in our showing up. But if you're doing it from a good place, I think it's just a wonderful place to begin. Like, what do I really want to bring? What do I really want to do? Do I have a church that's full of members that are well-educated and know about health disparities? Like, what does it mean for me to, like, try to bridge that gap? You know, like, really, like, look internally. And I think that's come up in the conversation. But I think that was absolutely what I wanted to make sure we said. You know, God calls us to be an active church. And the church needs to continue to be active. And the only way we can do that is if it's like introspective and also like taking action over the things that are happening right now Mm -hmm. and figuring out what's important and why, you know, in some of our churches, I've heard the comments of like, well, young people don't want to come to church, right? Like, it's like, well, I think everybody wants love and belonging. So I'm not sure that's the issue. I think you might just be boring. And I think you might. <laughs> and those of you that did not see that, I just made out some coffee. Ben was taking a drink when that comment happened. That was the best spit yeah. take of the day. Oh God, I did not see that coming. Love it. So true, though. Yeah, there's a nice saying hard things in a nice way like me. I give you that. That is my gift. But I think it's important right yeah somebody said i think jesus is coming because nobody wants to hear the gospel anymore and i said that's not i mean yeah maybe and also like your presentation might need to get a little upgrade like can we talk about that possibility right like well there's no one in our pews well let's talk about what you use your pews for Mm -hmm. right Mm. when you were talking that's what i was thinking that we're redefining active For one generation, active meant we had full pews. We're an active church. But the millennials are saying, that's not active, that's passive. And I don't want passive Christianity. I want to do what God is calling me to do. And that means getting out and being in our communities. And that's a very different definition of active. But you're right. I mean, what are we using our pews for? Who is in our community? What do we need to be doing? This is so rich. I wanted to keep this going forever. For those like me that have recently found themselves on the Alexandra Zaretz fan club, where can we follow your work, learn more about you, hear you speaking? How can folks keep in touch with you and keep aware of what's going on? I'm reachable. I'm reachable through LinkedIn. I'm reachable through Instagram. I'm reachable. You know, you can find me if you Google me. So, Alexandra, thank you again for making the time to join us this morning and for sharing the wisdom that you have that that God is pouring into and that you so graciously pour out into other spaces and people. It's been a true blessing. Thank you for having me. Keep up the good work, y'all. Thank you so much for being with us. That was a very rich conversation. As we promised our listeners, I know I laughed, wanted to cry a couple of times. It was really beautiful. But I'm wondering on this side of it, what are the things that are still resonating with you? I think that when she was talking about what it means to be invisible, because I think that oftentimes transcends cultural barriers. I think there's a point in everyone's life where they maybe feel invisible. And so just having that conversation with her about how do you make someone feel seen? And how important that is. I remember 
when we did some work with homeless, I remember thinking they're invisible in a street full of people. And how is that even possible? And so when she was talking, that's what I was thinking about, how invisible we can be in a crowd and how important it is to let somebody know, make eye contact, say hello, thank them for something they're doing. What a difference that makes in people's lives. You're not invisible. I do see you. And she made it seem very doable. Like, you know, you do it in love and you do it in humility and you're kind because that's what we're called to do. And so I just really appreciated that part of the conversation among many others. But that's what really resonated with me. How about for you? Uh, That part also resonated with me. It was one of the moments where I felt myself kind of choking up a little bit. Because as a person of color, there are definitely moments where that invisibility is felt. When she started talking about gauging whether or not you have the energy for a conversation, Mm. that really hit. Because that's a calculation that I make all the time. You know, do I have the energy to do the work required to address the situation? And a lot of times the answer is no. I either don't have the energy or I recognize this isn't actually my job, my work to do. And I got to decide to like keep it moving. And so... I felt really seen when she said that. Mm. And then I started thinking about, okay, if I feel like that as a a black person that moves in predominantly white spaces, how much more might someone feel that way if English isn't their first language or if they're an, an immigrant and a person of color? You know, there are layers to this. So that really stood out to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were a couple of times she was talking. I just wanted to shout, amen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. When she was talking about what it means to be an active congregation and what it means to actually help in community, that it's not about what I think folks need, but it's about building relationships and actually finding out what is the real need, not my perception of your need and how important that is as congregations. And I know the point is, to help where it's needed. But I think that work also transforms the congregation and the people in it Mm -hmm. because you're not just sitting there writing a check. You're actually getting your hands dirty in the mess that is ministry. And I thought that was a really powerful thing too. Yeah. And I appreciated the stories that she told. Yes. And well, I appreciated the stories because they made her points more concrete and more salient. You know, you could tell she teaches and preaches regularly that kind of came out of her. (laughs) Yes. But I also really admired, again, the awareness and humility that she displayed um, Mm -hmm. because it's not easy. And I say that, you know, I feel like I have a decent amount of humility and even more awareness, but it has taken me years Mm -hmm. to cultivate that awareness, especially with a lot of practice and a lot of reflection and a lot of like recognizing when I acted in a way that wasn't helpful or showed up in a way I didn't want to show up and I've got to address that and reconcile that within myself and then repair. It it just, it is a lot, right? (laughs) And so, you know, I I really want to name that for people that you're not just going to wake up tomorrow and have that awareness and that humility, but whatever you have is enough to bring into the space that you're in. And that's what I think is also important to say. Yep. Well, it also reminds me being a white woman that with privilege, there's a lot of conversations I don't have to engage in. And there's a lot of experiences that I can walk away from. But it's not the minority culture's responsibility to pull me back and say, hey, take a look. It's my responsibility to grow and to open my eyes and to listen and to remember that somebody else's lived experience is as valuable as mine and that I need to listen. And so it was a reminder to me 
to pay attention. It's easier to just sail through life, but it's not as rich and it's not as meaningful and it's not as joy filled to just coast through life. And that there's so much more when I let God get in there and really transform me and pull me into places and spaces that make me nervous and uncomfortable because that's where I'm going to grow and that's where others will grow with me. And so I just really appreciated all that she brought to this conversation. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you were reminded of and maybe heard again that invitation Mm -hmm. presence that she was talking. Yep. What a gift. What a gift. I think that reminder is so incredibly important for all of us, but especially those congregations that are listening or those leaders that are listening that are white or do come from predominantly white congregations, because you can opt out of these types Mm -hmm. of conversations. You can opt out of this dialogue. And so the reminder and the invitation that she, I think, offered with everything she said, with every story, with every anecdote, yeah, it's precious. And I hope people recognize how precious that is. Yeah, me too. Me too. We do want to highlight a couple of resources, but instead of bringing quote unquote, brand new resources for this episode. We're just going to point you back to two other podcast episodes that might have some useful resources. That's episode four of season three. So season three, episode four, our interview with Javier Madrigal. We talked about the nuances of leading a multicultural congregation, especially when you have different type of Spanish speaking cultures present. And so check out the resources and that entire podcast interview, actually. And then also season two, episode five with Pastor Bede Hill Soto, we talked about that invisibility, again, that immigrant mm. communities can often face and the added weight that a pastor of that community carries in leading uh, within that context. And so I think both of those interviews and then the resources collections that go along with them will be really rich engagement after you listen to this interview. Wonderful. Well, and ultimately, isn't that what Jesus did? He highlighted the invisible. And he shone light on people that others normally walked past and ignored. And so that feels like, what did Alexandra keep saying? I think that's biblical. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I love that. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So we appreciate y'all listening today. And as always, if you have a chance, please go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a rating. That's the fastest way for new listeners to find this podcast. We know you're listening. We know you appreciate our work. Just go ahead and hit that five-star button. That way, new listeners can find this content. And we want to thank the Lilly Endowment for their generosity in helping make these podcasts possible and invite you to find us on Facebook and Instagram. We are the Center for Congregations. We also want to give a shout out to our audio engineer, Jaden Lee, for helping us sound amazing and for keeping this podcast going. We appreciate the work that you do, Jaden. So thank you. Thank you, Jaden. And if you're looking for more resources, you can find those at the Congregational Resource Guide. That is T-H-E-C-R-G.org. And finally, we would be remiss if we didn't do our geographic shout out. So to our listeners in St. Louis, Missouri, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for helping keep this podcast going. And if you have any recommendations or suggestions or things you want us to try, people you want us to interview, feel free to email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. So once again, thanks y'all for joining Shelley and I today and listening to this great interview. We know that you'll be back and we appreciate you supporting the work that we're doing here at the center. So until next time, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Shelley Riggs-Jordan. Thank you for listening. Thank you.